Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. That being said, uh, today we'll continue in a series. I think this is installment number four of a series uh, that we're going to be running through most of the summer on the book of Acts. Quick review, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books in the Christian New Testament. They're called the Gospels. They tell us the story of Jesus's life, which is why we love them so much and they're so important. They start with his birth, give us a brief, uh, brief stop in adolescent Jesus's life. We get like 12 year old Jesus for a moment and then it fastes fo- uh, fast forward to Jesus's ministry. And we see his, his, like his teachings, his miracles, all these amazing things. He dies on the cross, he rises from the dead. And in this amazing moment of power, he teaches and commissions his disciples. He says, y'all gonna go change the world, go build the kingdom. And then the gospels end. And if you're like me, it's like this, this big cliffhanger where you're left asking, what comes next? Well, I have good news for you. Acts is what comes next. Acts is the story of the birth of the church led by the disciples of Jesus, the very ones who watched him do his ministry and received this commission straight from his mouth. Now, I believe that this, uh, this book is an important one to study right now. You've heard me say this the past few weeks because the church in America is under siege. There's lots of criticism coming our way. Most of it deserved. And I believe that if we're going to build the sort of church here that's a faithful presence in our city, that's a breath of fresh air in a season of toxicity, Christianity, then we need to look to Acts. We need to look to these guys who knew Jesus best and knew his intentions for the church and try to restore the theological framework that they had then. So that's the hope of this series. Um, This diagram kind of describes it well. You guys remember it. We're looking at the ancient church and doing some pretty heavy Bible study material, which more of that to come today. At the same time, we're trying to do some cultural commentary and see how this ancient church actually overlaps right in the middle with some of the modern issues we're dealing with. So in week one, we looked at the introduction of Acts. Uh, Next slide here. And... uh, And we asked the question, can I trust the Christian scriptures? In week two, we looked at the Great Commission of Acts, and we asked a bit more of a controversial question, is diversity Christian? Uh, Week three, we also looked at uh, the the Commission of Acts, and uh, we looked at the other other part of it. And and we asked, why is the church facing a credibility crisis? And then this week, in week four, I want to look at the last chunk of, of Jesus' commission here in Acts and look at thematically how he teaches us about the power of the Holy Spirit and how it empowers us to actually do the work that he calls us to in this commission and how the Holy Spirit is literally the hero of Acts. He is literally the thematic power and thread that runs through and empowers the disciples to do all that they do. And in so doing, we are going to ask and answer this question which may be of intrigue to you today. Why doesn't Christianity seem to work? When I read the Bible, it looks like it works really, really well, but why doesn't it seem to work now? Do we really have power, Tyler? I think you'll see today the answer is yes. 
Now, if you will, will you stand with me? Stand with me. We're gonna read uh, the commission of Jesus in Acts uh, again today from Acts chapter one, verses eight and nine. And uh, then we'll spend our time breaking it down. Acts 1, 8, 9, this is the risen Jesus speaking here to his disciples right before he ascends. These are his last words. Jesus said, you will receive, what's that word? Power. When the who? Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. After saying this, Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. Swear to the Lord, you can be seated. Thanks for standing. Thanks be to God for all of his word. Now, do we have power? Does Christianity work? I would suggest to you that this is the question underneath most people's intellectual questions and resistance with Christianity. I am uh, wired like a skeptic. You guys know this if you listen to me preach much. And so I actually attract pastoral conversations with lots of skeptical people, folks who are resistant to Christianity or, or doubters or maybe deconstructing their faith. And uh, I have found that when I sit with folks like this literally every week, one, they have profound questions. I find myself stumped every week and like, hey, I'm gonna have to get back to you on that one because that's good. But also too, I find that almost 100% of the time, underneath their intellectual problems with Christianity, is emotional trauma, personal disappointment, or some sort of Christian failure that's wounded them, they've experienced in their life. This church hurt me. Those Christians abused me. This Christian institution lied to me. Then compound that with the fact that celebrity moral failings, political posers, and religious fanatics get all the airtime, and you wonder why so many people are beginning to ask, does it really work? Do we really have power? So here's the big principle here for you. This is what I believe. I believe that the root of doubt and the root of deconstruction is oftentimes, it's usually the trauma of disappointment. That's what's hovering beneath the service. I'll go ahead and tell you, if you grow up in an environment that is uh, <clears throat> healthy and faithful and loving, then you will be far less likely to find the intellectual issues with Christianity as compelling. But if you grow up in a toxic environment, you'll be far more likely to see their plausibility. Now, I've made these arguments before uh, in this space, previous sermons, so I'm just gonna summarize them here today. But I do believe that we as Christians have power, a tremendous amount of power. In fact, I think that history actually bears that out, how powerful the Christian uh, worldview is. Like first, for example, Christianity is by far the most charitable and humanitarian philosophy of thought ever, ever. And that's not just because it's baked into our doctrine, that's actually baked into the actions of Christians for 2000 years now. Christianity is also by far the most ethnically and socially diverse religion ever. We have power. And the reason why is because Christianity is the only major world religion in which God is believed to be essentially love. God is love as revealed on Jesus' cross. It's at the heart of our faith. This is not what Eastern religions believe, you know, Buddhism or whatever. They believe that God's impersonal, if you will. One day when we die, we'll sort of fade into the impersonal oneness of the universe. That's not what uh, Islam believes. Islam may believe that Allah is merciful and compassionate, 
They may believe that Allah has commanded uh, Muslims to be peaceful, but they don't believe that Muslims relate to Allah in a personal loving relationship like we Christians do. In fact, Muslims just submit to Allah. That's what the word Muslim means. Look it up. Okay, and of course, irreligious people, well, they don't believe in religion at all, right? In fact, they believe the world would be a whole lot better off and a heck of a lot more loving if we just get religion out the way. So John Lennon in uh, 1971 uh, had a dream that he wrote into a song called Imagine. You ever, you ever heard this song? It's a pretty popular one. I want you to, to read the lyrics here with me because this uh, captures kind of the secular, irreligious mindset. Uh, he says, imagine there's, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. You know the song? No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people. You got it? Living for today. Somebody got, oh. Okay, yeah, that's verse one. And then the next verse, um, this is where he really gets it. He says, imagine there's no country. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. There he gets at it. That's the dream. It would be so much more peaceful without it. I find it interesting that uh, in 2018, at the Olympic ceremonies in uh, South Korea, they actually sang this song as the nations of the world came together in this moment of unity around sport and competition. Isn't that rich? Isn't that rich? Because well, if the world was a democracy, those who are irreligious would be the overwhelming minority and also extremely white and Western in terms of their demographics. Hmm. And yet here we are singing it as the anthem of the Olympics. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin uh, wrote this about it. She said, we must wake up to the fact that Lenin's dream was a fantasy. And what is worse, it was a fantasy fueled by white Western bias and grounded on the assumption that the world would follow where Western Europe led. The question for the next generation is not how soon will religion die. It's growing. The question is Christianity or Islam. Powerful words. Now, in the face of Lenin's dream that there would be no religion, nothing to die for. At about the same time, Pastor Martin Luther King had a dream as well. This is what Pastor preached. He said, there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. And Pastor King discovered exactly what he thought was worth dying for. In fact, he did die for it April 4th, 1968. He died because he believed Christianity meant charity. It meant humanitarianism. It meant reaching across social and ethnic lines. And that's because the Christian God was a God of love who proved love was worth dying for on the cross, right? So we have power, we do. We have a tremendous amount of power. Christianity works. Problem is, is yet you have to do it rather than distort it or dilute it. Do you know what else Christianity teaches? I'm sorry, we'll just go straight in today. Christianity also teaches that there are some Christians who will one day be very disappointed on judgment when they stand before Jesus because Jesus will send them off with the goats. And you know why? Because they bear no fruit and they cared less. They cared not of the least of these among us. 
So it isn't a matter of whether Christianity has power. It's a matter of whether you'll have it yourself. And this is what Acts teaches. Acts teaches us that the Holy Spirit provides us with power. Now, before we get to Acts, so I, I want to kind of flip this on its head. Because this is what I believe is keeping many of us from power. Okay, Another big principle here. I believe anytime we look elsewhere for power, other than God, we serve a jealous God. He will have no idols. This is what scripture says. There's only room for one on the throne of your heart. So anytime we look elsewhere for power, it actually robs the spirit of power in our life. We're good at finding alternative sources of power to depend on. Like, for example, I believe the most pervasive alternative source of power that we look to today is uh, what Scripture calls mammon. Mammon, that's the Greek word for it. Mammon. Um, or uh, we could sum it up like this, the pursuit of the good life. Health, wealth, and prosperity. Jesus actually says you can't serve two masters, you can't serve both God and mammon. And yet mammon is so powerful that I have found that it's co-opted large swaths of Christian faith and actually convinced us that the pursuit of mammon is good. It's actually taken a religion built on self-sacrifice and giving up power and turned it into a religious system to acquire it, to acquire blessing. You see this? Why is it exactly that health, wealth, prosperity, gospel preachers are the best sellers with the biggest churches I'll tell you why. It's because they say, claim your victory. Just pray it, believe it into existence, and the Lord will give it to you. They play on the mammon impulse inside of us. I have watched as, as the church leadership industry in America has been swept away in the pursuit of mammon. Why is it that the largest, fastest-growing churches are just assumed to be the healthiest? Oftentimes, a crowd doesn't necessarily prove health. Sometimes it can prove, prove a tremendous amount of dysfunction, especially when it comes to religion, right? So why is it? It's the mammon impulse. It's bigger. It's growing. Look at how they've franchised themselves and they're reaching people. You know, and of course, it's all baptized under the guise of evangelism. They're reaching the lost. Look at how they're reaching people. Oh, that must be what God wants to happen. This is why... Uh, there's been this crazy emergence of consumer Christianity in the last probably 40, 50 years in our, our country. It's just crazy. Churches have moved away from doing the hard discipleship, challenging people to carry crosses and do the hard spiritual disciplines that connect you to the vine and help you bear fruit. And instead, we operate like any other consumer entity would. We do what we can to attract people and keep people for an irreducible minimum. And whoever does that best, whoever sells the best hot dog, they're going to get the most business. And that's what success looks like. You know what blew my, so in seminary, this blew my mind. I just never understood it. And again, I'm, at, I'm coming after mega churches and I'm looking around. Okay, so I just, but, so we, got, we must do better ourselves. But it's blew my mind in seminary. Um, there was this, this thing that started to happen in the late 90s and through the 2000s called uh, the multi-site mega church movement. Now I am all for planting churches where they're needed. We must keep up with population growth with church plants, absolutely. But it was curious to me, because I'm in seminary, I was watching these, these big successful churches. They were multi-siting multi in communities where there were already other healthy churches. And then the church sociologists would go in and they'd be like, well, actually what's happening is it's not really, they're not really reaching lost people, they're just cannibalizing the smaller churches. It's just like sheep swapping. 
blew my mind. Except, but instead of listening to like the prophets and the intellectuals that were saying this is not actually working, I just kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. In my mind, I always wondered, okay, instead of doing a $20 million capital campaign to put a building over there in that other community with healthy churches, even though they might be smaller or medium sized, why don't you just give the $20 million to those churches? Never seen a church do that, have you? No, you haven't. And you want to know why? It's the same reason why Walmart doesn't care about mom and pop shops in the city. It's the mammon impulse. And it's powerful. It's in this church. It's in me. We got to root it out. Now, while that's the most power, uh, I guess powerful and pervasive alternative source, I would, I would say the most popular alternative source for power today in our country is politics. Can't get away from it, can you? In fact, I think the Christian left and the Christian right are so convinced that politics, the acquisition of political power will bring the kingdom that we've almost sold our souls to it. There's this culture war frenzy, you you see it? Now, this is in spite of the fact that that recently there was some interesting data produced. Uh, There's a Christianity Today article released called uh, Proof That Political Privilege Is Harmful for Christianity. In fact, go Google it later. It's fascinating. You can actually see the, the research is linked in the article. The article was written by Nijay Sayah. Uh, he's an assistant professor of public policy and global affairs at the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. For those of you who don't know, this is one of the top 15 universities in the world on earth every year. Okay. And here are some of the highlights from the article. Uh, he said they analyzed a global sample of 166 countries. That's a lot. From 2010 to 2020. And they found that the biggest threat to Christian vitality was not persecution, it was not affluence, it was not education, it was not pluralism, it's not socialism, capitalism, CRT, or the SBC, no. It's the extent to which governments give official support to Christianity through laws and policies. I'm just reporting the data to you, okay? Nine of the 10 countries, they found, with the fastest declining Christian populations often gave moderate to high levels of official support for Christianity. Now, why is this the case? Well, this is their conclusion. Because the presence of pluralism, follow me here, and the absence of privilege means Christianity must be chosen for its actual merits and its spiritual power rather than its social merits and political power. Did you follow that? Let me read this to you again. This is important. The presence of pluralism and the absence of privilege means Christianity got to be chosen for its actual merits and spiritual power rather than its social merits and political power. Or in other words, there's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian when it may cost you welfare, prison, or worse. Right? So uh, this is the conclusion of the article. They said, our research suggests that the best way for Christian communities to recover their gospel witness is to reject the quest for political privilege as inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus, because it is. In doing so, they would show that they take seriously Christ's promise that no force will be able to prevail against his church and rejecting privilege will make believers more reliant on the Holy Spirit, there he is, to open hearts to the gospel message. I heard this great bit recently from a pastor named Derwin Gray, who I respect so much. Um, he, he, said, he said, you're telling me that the church survived the persecution of Nero and Rome for three centuries in uh, early and late antiquity. 
telling me that the church survived the persecution of the Middle Ages. The church has survived the persecution of modernity. In places where there's high persecution, like Afghanistan, Iran, and China today, the church continues to explode. But you're telling me that if we don't elect the right American politician, then somehow that's gonna destroy Christianity. By the way, Christianity thrived even in the midst of persecution for 1,700 years without American politics, but you're telling me we don't get the right politician in office, then we won't save Christianity, save Christianity? And God the Father's up there in heaven like, hey, I created the universe. Jesus is up there like, save me, I, I saved you. And the Holy Spirit's up there like, I'm the power that rose Jesus from the dead. So what's the point? The point is, scripture's clear, we have power. We have power, it's available to us in the Holy Spirit, but we rob the Spirit when we look to alternative sources. Now, big thesis for you today, let's get the Acts. Social commentary over, let's get the Acts. So I want, I want you to see this power in Acts, all right? Big thesis here. Bible nerds, this is your moment. Uh, in Acts, our God, the Holy Spirit, births the age of the church and builds the breadth of the church through the empowerment of Jesus' disciples. This is the theme. This is the thread you see. It's in Acts 1-8. Jesus promises it, and then it happens for 28 chapters. And I want to show you this. Now, there are five key, key times or five key themes in which we see the Spirit really empower and inhabit the disciples. I'm not saying these are the only five where the Spirit gets involved, like the Spirit can do what he wants to. He's God, right? But I'm saying these are the five themes that I notice in looking at all the examples of when the Spirit directly intervenes and empowers. I want you to see them. I want you to see them. Because maybe we should get down to the business of doing them. The first is conversion. Conversion. When we witness to the lost, what Acts shows us is that we are empowered. Uh, the conversion of others. Here is a, a, a list of all the times when, uh, you have to skip the Acts 8 D to get to that. The, a list of all the times in Acts where we see conversion and the power of the Holy Spirit collide, sort of electrify the people there. Bible study nerds, you, you can snap a shot of it if you want to and, and go to it later. But uh, I wanna give you one specific case study that I find fascinating. Um, it's in Acts chapter eight. It's the story of the Samaritans and the sorcerer. Okay, now I'm gonna walk you through this story point by point here because this, this is really interesting. You can go back and re read it later. Uh, first, first, we see that Jesus wants, uh, you can throw, the, throw this guide slide up there. First, see Jesus wants the good news to go to Samaria, Acts chapter one, right? But no one wants to take it there. Why? Because the Jews hate the Samaritans and the Samaritans hate the Jews. It actually takes persecution in Acts chapter eight to get Philip to go there first. He witnesses to the lost there through preaching and compassion. And what we see is a bunch of people get saved, even a famous sorcerer named Simon. Okay, they, they, I mentioned him by name. Now, quick pause here uh, from our story. This would have been astounding and also horrifying for some because the Samaritans are now getting saved into the people of God. Uh, the scriptures tell us that word actually gets back to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church is mortified by it, but also intrigued by it. Like some people are like, uh, yes, uh, apostles, we don't want the Samaritans in eternity with us. And they're like, well, we don't even, we don't know what's going on there. So they actually, they actually send Peter and John from Jerusalem to Samaria to investigate. 
Make sure that, that you know, there ain't no funny business going here because the Samaritans have found Jesus. So Peter and John actually go and investigate back to our slide. They find that it's legit. They pray over the Samaritans and as a sign of legitimacy, the spirit falls on them, legitimizing the conversion of these evil, evil, bad people. Now, here's the funny thing that happens next. Simon, the sorcerer, sees this. And he actually tries to buy franchise rights to the Holy Spirit. And he gets in a whole lot of trouble. Acts chapter eight, verse 18. It says, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me also this power so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, and Peter like goes King James, rebuke, smiting, like this is awesome. He's like, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part or share in this, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. The chains of wickedness. Straight Gandalf right there. It's just like, whew. And then Simon answers, pray for me, Lord, that nothing you just said will happen to me. Now, you see, you see, do you see what Simon learns here? Simon actually learns that the Holy Spirit is, is powerful, but he empowers not the wealthy, but the witness. The witness, those witnessing. We'd be smart to take note as well. Uh, next big theme, multi-ethnic inclusion. Multi-ethnic inclusion. What we see in Acts is when we witness across lines of prejudice, uh, we are, in fact, Empowered. Now, uh, we addressed this in full a couple weeks ago in one of our sermons about diversity. Go back, you can get the whole full, full version there, but, but here's a quick rundown of all the different examples we kind of walked through that day. Uh, you can throw the example slide up there for the Bible study nerds. And the case study I wanna give you is, is uh, a case study that I didn't include there on the list. It's Acts chapter one and two. Again, in Acts one, Jesus tells them, the spirit will come and empower you when you bear witness where? Everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There's an ethnic component to it. Now, in Acts chapter two, uh, we actually see uh, the apostles go out and do this. On Pentecost, for the first time, they begin to bear witness. And on Pentecost, this amazing thing happens. The Holy Spirit empowers them with the gift to what? Anybody remember this? It's not to speak in tongues, because this gift is different than the speaking in tongues you see in other places in the Bible. It's actually the gift to speak foreign languages and dialects that they did not previously know. Why would he do that? Well, one, it's Pentecost, and there are people who have pilgrimaged to Jerusalem from all over the world, and two, this is a multi-ethnic kingdom. This is a blessing to all the nations. We're bringing into the people of God anyone who will embrace Jesus. Peter actually describes it like this in uh, Acts 2.16 after it happens. He says, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour my spirit upon all people. And there we see it happening. Theme number three, encouragement. Encouragement. We see in Acts that when we face hard times or persecution for our witness, we are empowered. The spirit encourages us. Now, here's your case study uh, for this one. In uh, Acts chapter 20, Paul has this interesting revelation. Uh, he, he senses that the Holy Spirit is actually calling him to leave Ephesus where he's been for three years and just, just killing it, 
and go to Jerusalem to be persecuted and arrested. Acts 20, he explains it uh, to uh, his friends in Ephesus like this. Paul says, and now as captive to the spirit, do you see that? He's captive to the spirit. As captive to the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies. Isn't that interesting? Testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. Now, for the record, Paul was right. He gets to Jerusalem, and within one week, he is arrested. In fact, about a week later, he's in the temple. They recognize him as Paul, the Gentile sympathizer, and a mob breaks out, stirs the whole city up. They start beating Paul. Paul's near death, and he gets saved by Roman soldiers. Let me read you the story. This is a fascinating story. There are lots of Bible today. If you don't like Bible, this is not the church for you. Um, 2130. It says, Paul was grabbed and, and he's dragged out the temple. And immediately the gates were closed behind him. And as they were trying to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately called his soldiers and officers and they ran down among the crowd. And when the mob saw the commanders and troops coming, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander arrested Paul and ordered him bound with two chains. He asked the crowd who he was and what he had done. Some shouted one thing, some shouted another. Since he couldn't find out the truth in all the uproar and confusion, he ordered that Paul be taken in the fortress. As Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent, the soldiers had to lift him to their shoulders to protect Paul. And the crowd followed behind him shouting, kill him, kill him. As Paul was about to be taken inside, he said to the commander, may I have a word with you? Do you know Greek? So he spoke it in Greek. He says, do you know Greek? The commander asked, surprised. Aren't you the Egyptian who led a rebellion some time ago and took 4,000 members of the assassins out into the desert? <laughs> Paul's like, uh, no. <laughs> but I'm a Jew and a citizen of Tarsus in Cilicia, which is an important city. Please let me talk to these people. And the commander agreed. Quick pause. All right. Let's talk about this for a second. Do you see the supernatural level of emotional poise and spiritual courage that Paul has in this moment? He is almost beaten to death and within seconds he has the poise to speak in Greek to this Roman commander who was ticked by the way to have to break up a mob, but he speaks in Greek and whatever he says to them, we probably don't have the whole conversation here, he wins him over and wins his respect so much so that he convinces him you should let me talk to these people yelling, kill him. What is the commander thinking? Is this like a Jedi mind trick? And what is Paul thinking? They just tried to kill him. It shows you the supernatural level of compassion Paul has in his heart for the law. Now you know what Paul does next? 22, one, it says, he says, brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul says, listen to me as I offer my defense. And when they heard him speaking now in Aramaic, he says, let's look at the poise, right? The silence was even greater. And then he preaches the gospel. And they listen. And the story says it seems like they like it. In a matter of about three minutes, Paul goes from being beaten, arrested, to empower of the situation. Tell me this is not supernatural power. Tell me the Holy Spirit didn't lead him here, right? 
and they're listening to his presentation of the gospel until, of course, he says the G word. Acts 22, verse 21, uh, Paul says, but the Lord said to me, this is the very end of his sermon, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then the crowd uh, started uh, shouting, away with him, he said the G word. And okay, it's over at that point. But do you see, do you see, how do we get such courage? How do we get such poise? We get it from the Holy Spirit when we witness. This is one example of many. Uh, yeah, I think I've got a se- several of them listed out for you. Go ahead and throw that slide up there for our, our, our Bible study nerds. You can check many of the examples out of how the Holy Spirit emboldens or encourages disciples. I especially love Acts 9.31. Next, fourth, guidance. Guidance. We see in Acts that when we seek the direction of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered. All right, now here's Bible study nerds. Here's the quick reference list for this one. Screenshot it, go look them up later. And I gotta tell you this, this story from Acts 16 because it shows you the supernatural guidance that, that the Holy Spirit just provides sometimes. Some of you guys have experienced this firsthand. So after Acts 15, Paul's on a roll. He's excited because in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council, the Jerusalem church endorses his mission to the Gentiles. After like 20 years, they finally say, this is God's will, they send him. So Paul goes out on his second missionary journey. Very, very excited. But then something happens, Acts 16, verse six, read this. It says, they went through the uh, region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God in Asia. When they had, some, uh, when they had come opposite Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas, to Troas. Now this is so fascinating. Not only does the Holy Spirit guide us in places, but sometimes he stops us from going places, apparently, Acts 16. And I'll go ahead and promise you, Paul would have been ticked that the spirit did not allow him to go to Asia. Because you wanna know why? Asia is where the Gentiles were. Asia was where some of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire were. Asia was where Ephesus was. Paul hasn't gone to Ephesus yet, but we know he wants to go there. He eventually stays there for three years. 250,000 people live there. It was one of the top five cities in the Roman Empire, but the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't go there. Pergamum was there. It was one of the intellectual centers of the world, the second largest library, and Paul was a nerd. Smyrna is there, the most beautiful city in Asia, 100,000 population, and the Holy Spirit says, skrr, you're not going to Asia, sorry. You get to go to Troas. And Paul's like, Troas? What's wrong with you? This must not be the Spirit of God if you're going to Troas. Now, you wanna know why? We're not 100% sure, but check this out. Little context clues sometimes tell us, tell us the story here. I wanna read to you Acts 16, six through 11. And I want you to pay attention to the personal pronouns that I've highlighted here, okay? Let's read this. Acts 16, verse six, it says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come opposite Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit said no. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, what's that word? We. We immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God has called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas. So did you notice the flip in personal pronouns? All of a sudden, it goes from third person plural to first person plural. Do you know why? 
This is the first time in all of the book of Acts where the, the, the first person plural pronoun is used. It's always they, them, and all of a sudden now it's we, us. Do you know why? We can't be certain as to why. But some scholars suggest that it was in fact in Troas where the apostle Paul met our author, Luke. And perhaps even converted our author, Luke, the great Luke who wrote a quarter of the New Testament, who wrote the gospel of Luke and who wrote Acts, which we are writing. It's there in Troas where he met Luke because all of a sudden Luke's like, I'm on the journey with him. It's us, it's we, they to we. Do you see? All because Paul listened to the guidance of the spirit and went not where he thought he was supposed to go, Asia, but instead to stinking Troas. You see how the spirit empowers us? Last theme here, last. He lastly empowers us with supernatural gifts. We see this in Acts. When we trust, uh, even though we know that we're not enough, we see in Acts that we're empowered. Over and over in Acts, we see the Holy Spirit empowers the disciples to do all sorts of things. Throw up the, the summary slide there. I'm not gonna go through, through these with you because we're, we're running out of time. I'll read you Acts 4.13 though. Because this, this gives you a, a wonderful example of it. Peter and John have been arrested. They're ordinary fishermen, untrained. And they're standing before the same people who crucified Jesus, the religious elites of the day. After they speak to them, Acts 4.13 records what the members of the council thought of them. It says the members of the council were amazed by them. They certainly didn't like them. They wanted to kill them, but they were amazed by them when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were just ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. Yet they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. You see, you see how the spirit can take us past our natural capacities in moments where we need it. And again, some of you have experienced that in your life. All right, mm, Bible study over. Let me summarize. Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus said, you will receive, so we're power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here's the fact of the matter, y'all. You can either have political power or the Spirit's power, but you can't have both. Uh, you can either have the power of mammon or the power of the Holy Spirit, but you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And if you happen to be one of the people in here today that wants the power of the Spirit, my advice to you would be to get down to doing exactly what Jesus told you to do to get it. Witness. Bear witness, and you will experience the Spirit's power in your life. Witness to the lost. Witness across lines of prejudice. Witness in the face of persecution. Witness wherever he directs you. And witness even when you are not enough. But in word and deed, let us be a witness for Jesus. Now, to conclude, can I flip this on its head real quick? Because we've been, we've been talking about the spirit, all right? So let me get even more spiritual with you. This is important. As Christians, we believe that our sacred texts teach us that life goes beyond what we can see. Life goes beyond what can be accounted for by science alone. We believe there's a spiritual realm around us uh, inhabited by both good and evil beings. And those evil beings are led by the fallen angel we call the devil. And here's what scripture teaches us. The scripture teaches us that the devil is more powerful than you. 
The devil is more crafty than you. The devil is far more seductive and beautiful than you would ever imagine. And the devil in this very moment is passing off in your life lies for truth. And he has a strategy to destroy every single one of us and none of us are capable of defeating him on our own. But we don't have to because we have the power of the Spirit available to us. In uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus says, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The apostle Paul writes later in Romans 8, 11, he says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. So you see, you know what I believe the devil's great deception is? It's hiding the spirit from us. Because the Holy Spirit makes him tremble. Because he remembers that one time 2,000 years ago when from the clutches of death, the Spirit brought resurrection life and flipped the world upside down. And he wants to do that in your life today. That power is available to you. There's only one way to get it. In order to have that power for good, Scripture teaches us you have to admit you're no good. We believe that you must humbly receive the power of Jesus' cross before you victoriously receive the power of the Spirit's empty tomb. That's available to us today. That's what we remember when we partake of communion. And that's how we're gonna close our service today, by remembering that. So I'm gonna invite Melinda on stage to lead us through it.